Praise the Lord. So thankful to be here tonight. I'm very thankful for this great church. I'm thankful for the leadership of this church. I, uh, I know everything that I need to know about your pastor. When I found out, I got to meet him. I was preaching in uh, Fargo for a friend of ours, Brother Andrew Sletton, and I got to talk with him after the service, and it just came out. He didn't bring it up. The guy that was there in this revival brought it up, but he was the young man that was uh, in this revival told me that this great man of God would drive four hours one way to teach him a Bible study and then drive four hours back home. And I, I knew everything I needed to know about this man. So when he called me and said, hey, would you be willing to come and preach for us? I said, absolutely. I would love to just be around a great man of God like you. So I honor him. I'm thankful for him. Very, very humbled to be here. Great to be around the people of God. I'm thankful for the church. There's nothing like the church in this end time hour. Amen. There's nothing better than the church. I've, I've seen the best of the church, and I'm thankful for the church. And those aren't empty words. I've truly seen the best. And so I'm thankful to see my extended brothers and sisters here. I never met y'all, but we are brothers and sisters. Amen? Amen. I'm thankful that we serve the same Father. We've all been baptized in the same blood. Amen. Thankful for all of you. Thank you so much for allowing me to be here. Thankful for it. If you'll remain standing, I'm going to go to Judges chapter 3. I'm going to start with verse 1. I honor my wife as well. She is not with me. She is at home with our three young children. We have a two-year-old, a four-year-old, and a six-year-old. And we have a would-be eight-year-old who is in heaven right now. And I am very thankful for my wife's ministry. She is the ultimate mom. She is the greatest mom on this planet. And uh, she has taught me so much on how to be the bride of Christ. She has taught me everything that I need to know outside of the word of God. The word of God taught it to me and she confirmed it on how to be nurturing, how to be loving, how to be gentle, how to be kind, how to look at God's kids. And I'm eternally thankful for my wife. Very, very, very thankful God made us one. Amen. Genesis chapter three, verse one, it says, now these are the nations, look at these words, which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them, that is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. Namely, five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites, dwelt in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath, and they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. There is a profound truth hidden within this passage, and it's not so hidden, it's right in front of us, that if we don't understand it, we're going to be, we're probably going to get offended at God in the end times. And that is not the will of God for us to be offended by him. We need to know the ways of the Lord. We need to understand him and what he's doing in this end time hour. And that is what I feel the Lord prompting me to do tonight. This is a stand conference, and we're entering into a time where having done all to stand, we need to stand therefore, amen? And so this, what I feel to minister, God gave me in prayer this evening, I feel to minister this because I believe that this will help us stand, amen? Now, would you lift up your hands right now, and this is what the Bible commands, commands of us. It says to set your affection on things above, not on things of this earth. So can we get heavenly minded right now? 
Can we cast down imaginations and every high thing that would exalt itself against the knowledge of Christ Jesus? Can we begin to set our affections upon his will, upon his word, what he wants to do here tonight? Begin to meditate upon heavenly things, kingdom things. Not my will, but thy will be done. Thy kingdom come here on this earth, God. That's what we want. We want heaven to meet this room. Father, your people are in this room and they're filled with your spirit and your word tells us that out of our belly shall flow rivers of living water. So Father, I'm here to partner with the people of God and I believe that a holy, precious flood of your spirit can come into this room through the people of God. Father, I join my giftings with them tonight, Father, and we submit ourselves to you, Lord, for your perfect will to be done in this room. Have your will, have your way, speak what you need to say to us, prepare us, but God, what we want most is to be in your presence. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen, amen. Can you just offer up the Lord some praise, some thanksgiving? It could be a hallelujah, a hand raise, a hand clap. You could leap for joy. In the name of Jesus, we thank you. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, amen, amen. I want to minister to us tonight that this is our finest hour, amen, amen. You can be seated. On September 1st of 1939, Germany inaugurated World War II by attacking Poland, which ultimately led to a series of global domination-minded attacks, and then there were subsequent invasions of Norway, Belgium, and the Netherlands. With an undefeated record as well as military prowess and even precision, the Nazi regime now set their eyes on France. As the German tanks began to roll in and surround the French countryside, there was a call made to save the armies that were residing within that region. They asked the Royal Navy ships and even civilian boats to evacuate soldiers from the beach. And over a period of a little more than a week, nearly 340,000 British, French, and Belgian soldiers were rescued from Dunkirk. By June 14th of 1940, Germany had infiltrated Paris and the French government not only surrendered but pledged to even cooperate with the Nazis. Now, with bloodthirsty German troops fully occupying France, they were now standing at the threshold of Great Britain. All of a sudden, Prime Minister Winston Churchill made a series of three speeches which ultimately would change history. In one of his speeches, he said, we are in the preliminary stages of one of the greatest battles in history. I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat, he said. He asked the question, he said, what is our policy? It is but to wage war with all might and with all strength that God can give us. In another speech, he said, if we fail, then the whole world and all that we have known and have cared for will sink into a new dark age. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire lasts for a thousand years, men will say of us that this was their finest hour. History would go on to prove that this truly was their finest hour as they took up arms and they waged war and they would begin the process of holding on to their land. What was it that we have to ask ourselves that bred their finest hour and produced such a powerful call to action, to bravery, and even sacrifice? What historians have asked was the key ingredient that produced the heroes of that particular time and hour. 
The response that comes back every single time that these questions are asked is what's produced such sacrifice, such bravery, such action was pressure from a formidable enemy that was standing at the threshold. This is the context, you must understand, of the book of Judges that we just read. In fact, you will find in Judges 3 that Israel is in a very complacent and almost backslidden condition. And in Judges 3, 1, it tells us these are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them. This was only so that the generation of the children of Israel might be taught to know war. Verse 4 says, and they were left that he might test Israel by them. The wisdom of God Almighty allowed the pressure of an enemy to weed out complacency and to breed urgency. God was the one who allowed the nations that were mentioned, the five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites, the ones who dwelt in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath. God was the one who allowed an enemy to dwell at the threshold. This was the wisdom of God. This is not a mean God. This is not a cruel God. This is not an unfair God, but this is a just God. And God knew what he needed to do in order to breed out complacency and produce urgency. In both the first and second testaments of your Bible, the word translated test simply means to prove by trial. You understand that God did not leave an enemy to poke fun at the Israelites. God was not leaving an enemy to beat up on his people because God is not a wife beater. But what God was doing was he says, I am going to prove to the adversary what I already know is true in my people. I'm going to allow these enemies around them to prove to themselves as well as to the adversary that there is far more inside of them than they even are aware of. These will be left to prove how powerful I am by trial. Therefore, when God tests his children, his purpose is to prove that our faith is real. And God has far more faith in you oftentimes than you even have in him. God looks at us filled with his spirits, those that are called by his name, and he has a greater revelation of our potential than we even have of him. And he is using an adversary to prove to us what we don't even know about ourselves. It is not God being cruel. It is not God being mean. It is God being infinitely wise. It is God showing us what he would reveal through us through problems. You understand that a weightlifter doesn't even know how much they can lift until they put themselves under the weight and pressure of something they've never lifted before. I used to be a powerlifter. That's what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to be a professional powerlifter. And we would do what was called forced negatives is where we would put more weight than we were capable of lifting on a bar. And we would take it off and we would allow it to come down on us and we would push with everything we had because this was prophetic of what we were capable of at due time. We would allow more weight than we had the potential to lift because there would be a day where we could lift it. But to know that, we had to load up the bar with what was seemingly unreasonable. It is literal muscle prophecy. You're telling your body that it's capable of more than what it currently can. Our bodies are designed for pressure. 
I had a pastor recently tell me, he said, the people of God don't want to be challenged. And I said, the day they shut down all of these CrossFit gyms across America, I will accept that word, but that is not true. I said, how is it that people are going to CrossFit gyms all across America and they're paying people to challenge them? You're getting it for free in the house of God. I believe the people of God want to be challenged. I don't believe we want to be beat on, but I do believe we want to grow. But did you know that to grow fruit means you have to die in soil? The ground has to be tilled. That the thing that you once were has to give way to what you will be through death and darkness. That is the process of production. That is what God is calling in us. He wants to produce in us a fruit of righteousness, a fruit of faithfulness. He wants us to give forth the fruit of our praise, which is the sacrifice of our lips. God is looking for us to produce, but to do that comes pressure. This pressure is revealed through the man Jesus as he told his disciples that all who don't bear fruit will be cast away. But those who do bear fruit will be pruned so that they could bear more fruit. Jesus would finish off this statement by saying, already you are clean by now knowing this. God was looking at them in the flesh and he says, you won't be offended in me because now you know I prune those who bear fruit so that they can bear more fruit. If you begin to produce as a child of God, you can take it to the bank that God is is going to come and prune some things so that you can produce more. This is the way of God. This is the wisdom of God. This is the process of God. And if we don't understand this, and if we buy into a prosperity gospel that's being preached in our world right now, and if we are looking for our best life now, we're going to miss the entire plan of God in the end times. God's number one message is fruit. He wants us to produce fruit. His number one heaven or hell message is fruit. To those who don't bear fruit will be cast out into the fire and burn. He says that seven times in his earthly ministry. It's the only time he preaches heaven or hell is when he's preaching about fruits. So to produce is going to come with a tilling of the ground, of a death of a seed. And then when we finally start producing, God comes along and prunes it. This pressure produced men and women of God like Ehud, one of the judges, Otniel, a judge, Deborah, a judge, Jael, a judge. But eventually, Judges 6 says that the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. And the Israelites ran into dens and caves and strongholds in the mountains. And finally, we get to Judges chapter 6, verse 3. It says, so it was whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up. Also, Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. Take from them all of their resources. Remove the bread from their mouth and that will demoralize them. And it's in this context of an enemy taking away food that the Bible reveals to us another judge named Gideon. In Judges 6, 11, it says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which is an Ophrah. If you study your Bible closely, you'll find that every time God meets with a human at a tree, he's establishing a test that will ultimately lead to a covenantal promise. This is the process all the way through. He did it with Abraham on that mountain with his son Isaac. When the Bible said he laid him upon, in Hebrew it says ha'etz, he laid him upon a tree. God is meeting with Gideon and he's saying, will you pass your tree test or will you fail? the tree test the way Adam and Eve did. God is always presenting some kind of a tree test, not 
to, to beat on us, but to prove to us what we're capable of if he is with us. It's not our strength, it's him with us that gives us the wisdom and ability to pass the test. He then speaks to this Gideon and he tells him in verse 12, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. You understand that God had already, he was viewing Gideon as he would be, not by what he felt like. You need to understand the context of this passage that Gideon, the Bible said, was inside of a wine press threshing wheat. Now you understand that before the Amalekites and before the problems were released, before they were taking their food, this process was way easier. What they would do is they would go out into the field and they would thresh wheat. Basically, they would take a sickle and they would cut the wheat and they would take it and they would thresh it on the ground. And when they did, the gleanings from the wheat would fall to the ground. And then they would come and take the produce, the gleanings, and a wind would come and blow the thresh, and they would collect it, and then they would burn it. Now they're having to hide inside of a four to six foot deep hole called a wine press, and they're threshing wheat inside of a wine press. There's no wind that's going to blow the thresh. It's way harder than it needs to be. Life is harder than it was a few years ago in this context. We were out in the fields doing this. Now we're hiding in holes doing this and God has the audacity to meet with him and say the Lord is with you mighty man of valor you understand how emotionally frustrating Gideon could get right here life is way harder than it needs to be in fact a few years ago this job that I'm now doing was way easier now it's difficult and listen to Gideon's response oh my Lord if the Lord is with us why then has all this happened to us? Doesn't sound like a mighty man of valor, does it? It doesn't sound like somebody who is filled with faith, does it? He then goes on to say, where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. This is how you're going to feel emotionally when you're approaching your tree test. So don't beat yourself up over feelings. Feelings are not the defining factor of your life. That's not not the end all. You're going to feel all kind of stuff. And our culture is now telling us to obey your feelings. I, I come against that with the word of God, that your heart is wicked and deceitful above all else. When your feelings start rising up, let me tell you what that is. I don't want to, I'm not going to demonize feelings. Those are lights flashing on the dashboard of your soul. Your feelings are telling you something's going wrong inside here and that's what they're there for. The feelings aren't bad. They're there to tell you something's going on in my soul. I'm not trusting God. I'm not, I'm I'm hurting. I'm broken. That's all fine. It's how you respond to the feelings is the issue. That's why the Bible says you can be angry. You just can't sin. You can feel stuff. You just don't get to act on it anymore now that you're mine. And Gideon is doing what we're all allowed to do. We're allowed to go to God with honest confession and say, God, I don't understand what's going on right now. I don't know why all of this is happening. There's nothing wrong with Gideon in going to God with honest confession. Where we go wrong is when we go to him and we try to hide all of that stuff. And we just say, God, I'm trusting you 100%. Don't lie to him. Just tell him, God, I trust you, but right now I'm a little lost. (laughs) I'm a little confused with why these Midianites are here, why they've been allowed to to thrive and to flourish while we, the ones who are serving you, are in a hole. I don't understand what is going on. 
Then the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours. <laughs> that is God's response to a man who just poured his heart out, who just told him everything he was feeling. God says, go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? You understand that the extent of Gideon's understanding of God was mitigated to what God could do for him. God, I only trust you if you will do well for me. This is the process for Gideon to grow up. This is a process of maturity that is happening right here. This is where Gideon ceases being a boy and he starts coming into a man of God because a child only looks at the father based on what, what can you do for me. You're not a bride at that point. If all you want from God are blessings, you're a gold digger, not a bride. God is looking for someone through sickness and in health, better or for worse, richer or poorer. God is looking for someone that says, I don't understand it, but yet will I trust you. God is looking for the people of God in this hour that even though we have pandemics, that even though we have politicians, that even though our country is going as far off no true north as we could even imagine, God still wants people that assemble together and say, God, I don't understand it. I've asked you for certain things that haven't happened, but I still trust you. We're not serving God just on blessings. We're serving God based on who he is, not just what he does. If God never did another thing for us, God has already saved us. Nothing breaks my heart more than when I come home from a long revival and I walk in and my kids ask me, what'd you get for me, daddy? I looked at my, my children just uh, last year and I said, my presence is what I got for you. Me coming home, me being your father should be enough. You could say I'm being hard. I can tell you that I'm training my children. I'm not spoiling my kids. There are times when I want to bless my kids. There's nothing wrong with the father blessing his children, but I want my children to know that there's more about daddy than what I do for them. There's even more about daddy by the fact that I am here. Judges 6, 15, he says this, Oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, the whole crux of the matter, Surely I will be with you. It's not about what I'm going to do for you, Gideon. It's the fact that I'm with you. This is the greatest revelation I need you to understand, that if I'm with you, what is the whole? If I am with you, what are the Amalekites? If I am with you, then what are the Midianites? If I am with you, you're going to see, Gideon, that this has nothing to do with how you feel. This has nothing to do with the hole you're in. This has nothing to do with how things are harder than they should be. This has everything to do with the fact that I see you as you will be, not as you are. I see you as a mighty man of valor, even though you don't feel like one. I see you as powerful, even though you don't feel powerful. Gideon, this is gonna be your greatest hour because what you don't know about about me is I left an enemy to produce in you the strength you need. 
You're going to see how great I am through you. Gideon then proceeds to test God's faithfulness twice with a fleece. And this is not given to us in the text as some way of us testing God's will. And we've done this. I'm going to go fleece God. That's not what this passage is about, for us to go fleece God. We have an entire Bible that tells us that he's capable. Why fleece him when the word has already told us what he is? Gideon was testing God, and God said, okay, I passed my test. Now, Gideon, I'm going to test you twice. That's the narrative. Gideon tests him two times with a fleece. Well, God, if I'm really going to do all this stuff, I'm going to put a fleece out there on the ground, and if there's no dew on it tomorrow but it's on the ground, then I know you're God. He comes out, sure enough, God passes the test, and he's like, okay, wait, let's do that in reverse. Let's put the fleece out there, and if there's dew just on the fleece and not on the ground, then I'll know you're, you're really going to be with us. God passes his test. Then God looks at Gideon, and he says, reduce your armies. I passed my test. I need, I've shown you I'm trustworthy. Can you show me the same? And so Gideon reduces his army. And then God says, okay, you tested me twice. Reduce them again. And Gideon reduces the armies again. Gideon is now showing that he is the mighty man of valor, that Gideon is a man of God because he's trusting God. God, you, you've shown me your character. Now I have an opportunity to show you mine. You understand that there's nothing like a problem to show God that here I am, God, I'm not going anywhere. You understand that when we go through issues, that when somebody hurts us and we forgive them, God in heaven nudges the angels and says, that's my child right there. You see that? It moves the father when we show him that God... I know nothing's going right. I know that nothing seems to be going my way. And this is a blessed opportunity for me to show you that I am going to be faithful. And the only way I can be faithful is by your spirit that is within me. It is our finest hours when we're going through manifold problems. That's why Peter said, through manifold temptations. That word temptations is the Greek word for test. Through manifold test, it's going to work in you patience. You realize that that's one of the fruit of the Spirit? That through testing produces in you something that without the test you would have never produced. It's our finest hour when problems surround us. It is the greatest hour of the church when nothing seems to be going the church's way. Because it's in those moments where the church stands up and says, God, I'm not leaving even though the prayer wasn't answered. God, I'm going to still stand right here believing. You see, the best thing that could ever happen to the child of God is God not answer your prayer. This is about how tight I figured it would be. And I'm perfectly fine with it because ask me how I know. Here's the thing. Is when God doesn't answer your prayer. And you go into a prayer room and say, God, even though you didn't. I still believe that you can. You're not just the average everyday sitting on the pew Peter or Patty Pentecost anymore. You are transitioning from a child to a man and a woman of God. You're slipping off into something else. Everybody likes to talk about the great prophet T.W. Barnes, don't they? They always talk about the mighty miracles and all the things that Brother Barnes did. But what nobody tells you about with T.W. Barnes is he had three nervous breakdowns. And he had three nervous breakdowns because he had multiple siblings and family members die in his arms. And every time something didn't go his way, he went out into the woods and began to pray 
pray. And when he prayed, he said, God, even though you didn't, I'm still going to preach to the people of God that you can. And he would see at the end of his life some of the greatest miracles, but it came off the heels of some of the greatest hurts. This was his finest hour. And this is what God is producing in the church right now. Don't be offended at God if you don't have your favorite president right now. Don't be offended at God when there's problems all around you. Don't get aggravated at God when things don't go your way. This is an opportunity for the people of God to dig your heels in and say, God, I don't know why. Here's how I feel, but God, I still trust you. I'm not feeling all together. I'm not excited about it. That's perfectly fine. God doesn't expect you to be leaping from heel to heel. What he expects is hands of reverence to go up and say, God, I still believe that you're able. Here's the interesting part. After God tests Gideon two times, and Gideon obeys and says, okay, I don't see how this is going to work, reducing our armies, but if you say so, you see he's becoming the man of God that God saw him to be when he was in a hole. That's the mighty man of valor we're looking at. But then Gideon does something unique. In verse 16 of chapter 7, he says, then he, Gideon, divided the 300 men Hold up. But saying God didn't ask him to divide those 300 men. God didn't tell Gideon to take an already unreasonably small army and divide them into three companies of 100. Gideon is stepping out into something else. He's saying, God, I just, I believe everything you have said is going to happen. I've had dreams of it. You have shown me through the fleece. You have proven yourself to me time and time again. I don't need any more fleece anymore. I have, I have grown up from that stuff. I don't need to fleece you. I just know that you are what you said you are. And so God, here's what I'm going to do. I believe that we can take an unreasonably small army and divide them up into three smaller companies. And I believe that you could still be victorious. I believe that you are the great God that you say you are. This is going to be our finest hour today. He then gives them instructions. He says, every man take for themselves a pitcher and put torches inside of those pitchers. Then he said to them, look at me and do likewise. Watch. And when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp of the beginning of the middle watch just as they had posted the watch. They blew the trumpets and they broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke their pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing and they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. You wanna know the rest of the story? When they did this, an unreasonably small number of men never even swung a sword because the enemy that was persecuting them prior is now turning on themselves and devouring each other. And this all came off the heels of 300 men who broke earthen vessels. You see what is taking place here. These earthen vessels were with torches inside would be symbolic of the 300 men who were holding them. They weren't just holding some random vessel. This was holding their opinions, their ideas, their wheels, their ways of life. And they said, no, everything that we hold dear, let us break it so that what's inside it can be seen. The light that's inside these torches will finally be seen. I don't just preach that 
creatively. That's in Scripture, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Theologians agree that Paul is likely referencing Judges 7 right here. That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. When this earthen vessel breaks, when I let go of my life and I lay it on the ground... Everything that's inside of my will will be raised up and seen before everybody else. He goes on to say, we are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are not, we have been persecuted, but not in despair. We have been, we are not forsaken, he said. We have been struck down, but not destroyed. We're always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. When you let go of this vessel, the thing that's inside of it, everybody sees. I said, ask me how I know. In October, six years will have gone by where me and my wife were on a date going to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We turned and we looked at each other and we said these words, what would, what would we do if we ever lost a child? And we both agreed, I don't think we would make it. It would be less than six months later where we would wake up to a house that was on fire and our three-year-old son wouldn't make it out. And we've seen that what we said to each other on the way to our date was different in reality. There was something inside of us that was stronger than the feelings that were outside of us. There was something being manifest inside of us that we never knew. I cannot brag. People ask all the time, can you give us counsel on how you made it? I look at them and I say, it's not by might nor by power. I, all I can tell you is I began to consume the word of God. All I can tell you is that the people of God are better than I ever imagined they could possibly be. All I can tell you is I don't know how people who don't have a church can make it. All I can tell you is that the Holy Ghost is absolutely real. I looked at my pastor one day and I said, how, how come I can't be depressed? Did I not love my son? He looked at me and he said, there's a bottom that the people of God aren't allowed to hit because of what dwells within them. You see that now I can stand up here and I can have true biblical joy because I know where my son is and I can live a victorious life here on this earth. But this problem, these problems that were manifest in my life produced in me something that was never able to be produced any other way. It has shown me that, God, you will be with me. God, you will never leave me. Those aren't just scriptures for me anymore. I have lived those scriptures. God, you will comfort me. I believe that true now because you have comforted me. God, you will provide for me because we lost everything in seven minutes, and yet the church came together and bought us a car. They gave us finances. They blessed us with clothes. God, you have shown me that you're my provider. You have shown me that you're my strong tower. You've shown me that you're my peace. The problems that are outside of us can be for our benefit if we can learn how to take those feelings and go into prayer and say, God, this is how I'm feeling, but here's what I know. You're with me. This will be the church's finest hour. What problems always produce in the people of God is another level of spiritual.
spirituality. These problems that are around us are there to drive us deeper into prayer. They are there to produce in us fruit that would not be produced any other way. These problems that are all around us, you have to reconcile that God has allowed it. You can get political if you want to, and you could talk about fixed voting. You can say all of that stuff, or you could just settle it in your soul. What is what is, is what God has allowed. And you can say, God, whatever you're doing, I trust it. Produce in me. I believe that we're getting ready to see the greatest church of any hour. Not because we're more special than any other time, but because God chose us for now. You realize God could have put you in the 40s. He didn't trust you with the Great Depression. He trusted you with a pandemic. He's trusting you with filth in our society. He's trusting you with gender identity issues. He's trusting you. He placed you now. He went through his category of heaven and he said, let's see, who can I trust with the end times? I know who I'll trust. I'll put you in the end times. I'm not going to put T.W. Barnes in the end times. I'll put you there instead. I have a whole other dispensation for T.F. Tenney, G.A. Mangan, N.A. Urshan. I know what time I want to put them in, but I've held you guys in reserve for the end times. I believe that this is the church's finest hour. I believe that we're going to see some of the greatest prayer warriors that we have ever seen. I believe we're going to see some of the greatest faith-filled people that we have ever seen. I believe we're going to see in our churches some of the most loving, peace-filled, joy-filled, patient people that we have ever witnessed. I believe that there's going to be a widespread revival if we won't get bitter about the process. The process has been allowed by God and it is allowed to produce in us something that we could never produce if everything was going our way. We have proven to God throughout history and in the Bible that we don't do well in promised lands. We get extremely complacent and these problems always provoke us into prayer meetings, into fastings, into passion. It's always going to be the pressure of an enemy sitting at the gates that produces in the church what the church was always designed to produce. If you think that this, is, this isn't fair, look at the first century church. They were thriving and they went through 10 times worse than what we're going through right now. And they were growing exponentially. It was established that somewhere around the seventh century that almost 80% of Rome had converted to Christianity because they were growing so much coming from the people that were persecuting them. This is what we see all of a sudden when, when Stephen is martyred, the church expands. When the people are persecuted, the church grows because something breeds within us that says, God, I have nothing else to trust in but you. I trust you. I can't even trust my government anymore. I trust you. You understand that this morning at 1.30 a.m., America set off an ICBM, an intercontinental ballistic missile. It was, there was no warhead in it. They were doing that to show Russia and North Korea that we're ready for battle. You understand that we are at the gates right now of war. That we are, we're, it's not just some passive thing. Do you understand that Russia just this past week 
put into their arsenal the largest nuclear warhead that has ever been made by any humans whatsoever. It is big enough to wipe out a landmass the size of Texas right now. And they have put that into combat readiness to prove to us that they mean business. And our response to that was at 1.30 this morning, we set off the Minuteman 3 to show them that we are also ready for war. If you're looking around wanting a little posh, easy little end time revival, you're not reading the same book that I'm reading. Because Jesus said that in this world, you will have trouble. He told us also that there would be problems in the end time. This isn't to scare us, but what this does is it pushes us into a place of passion. What the people of God have to do is we have to respond. We cannot grow lax in our prayers. We can't grow lax in our passion. God is breeding in the church true worship. There should not be a reason that we have worship that coaches us into praise. I have been hitting on this for the past two years. Years, and I'm waiting on people to just get it that when we come into the room why do we need music to provoke us to a place that we should know how to get to without the music we should know how to worship God whether anybody's pushing us and pulling on us at all it, it's almost as if we want a marriage counselor between us and the groom teach me how to love my groom well I think the cross was enough to do that I don't need music to make me love him more and to worship him. I can read the Bible and do that. I can come in here with hands raised and a preacher doesn't have to pull on me or push on me. I can just come in here. There's something that's within the people that have suffered that they say, what is life at this point? You get to the place. Here's the litmus test of when you're getting kingdom minded. It's when you are more passionate about heaven over earth. You see, we pick heaven because it's a better option than hell. But what I want to know is if you want heaven more than earth. Do you want his kingdom more than you want $100,000? A retirement policy. Comforts, nicer cars, bigger houses. Do you want his kingdom more than that? That's the test that God is issuing right now. Do you want to make his kingdom great or do you want to make America great again? You see, we're failing tests left and right. It's not about his kingdom, it's about ours. We want our two-story house with our white picket fence. We don't want his kingdom. And I'm not being hard. What I'm doing is I'm calling the people of God into a place of passion to where we say, God, everything around me has been available and it's been pressed into my time period so that I can pursue you with utmost passion. Musicians, get ready. Can you put those pictures up there for me? National Geographic put out a powerful article a few years ago. They talked about these flightless birds, and they said that before the arrival of humans, before there was rats, cats, and other predators, that we brought, New Zealand was an idyllic haven for birds. Without ground-dwelling mammalian hunters to bother them, many of the local species have lost the ability to fly. This bird used to fly. This bird in New Zealand now cannot fly. It's not because of him evolving they said that these studies have proven that the reason why this bird can no longer fly, even though it's related to ancestors that could, is because there's no natural enemies anymore. He lives in an idyllic place, and so this is what 
This author said, the call of the ground is a strong one. And it exists even when the skies are still an option. He said, these birds, their wings got dilapidated and they never taught any of their other birds, their, their offspring to fly. There's no need for it because there's no adversary. These birds will live the rest of their life walking in a realm that they were never called to live on alone. They were called to go to another height and they won't go there because there was no adversary there to provoke them. The defense mechanism of a bird is to fly to another dimension to where the adversary can't get to them. And that is the same with us. Did you know that a dove has nine feathers on its left and right wings? I believe that on its right wing should be the full manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit, and on its left wing should be the full manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit. And when we put these two things together, not one or the other, but both and, I believe that we can soar to different heights. And we're allowed that because it's given by the Spirit. We couldn't those things without it but through those things through the gifts and the fruit we are able to get to a place in a dimension where the adversary cannot get to us but the adversary will be the one that drives us to those heights the adversary should always push us to deeper prayer meetings the adversary we shouldn't be offended we shouldn't be afraid we shouldn't be cowering in a corner what all of this that's going on around us does is it provokes in us a passion for deeper prayers that's that's it, sister. I want you to pray right now. If you're an intercessor, I want you to begin to pray right now. What the people of God should be doing is we say, God, we're surrounded on every side. And so, God, here's what I want. I'm going to take my prayer time even deeper than it's ever been. I'm going to focus my Bible study time deeper than it's ever been because we're surrounded by so many winds of doctrine. And I want to ground myself in true biblical doctrine. I'm not just going to just... Just heap up on myself. I'm not going to veg out on Netflix or things like that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to dig into your word so that I won't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. I'm going to dig in and I'm going to study. I'm going to pray because I don't want to just have all word. I want to have spirit with it. So I'm going to be in prayer meetings often. I'm going to be in fastings often because I'm more hungry for you than I am of my hungers. I want you to lift your hands right now in this house. If you have gone through problems, if nothing has been going your way, it's not God being mean. It's God trusting you. It's God looking up at his people and saying, I trust them. I believe in what's inside of them. And if you have been through any issues within this church, if you have been surrounded by problems, it's the greatest compliment from heaven. It's heaven saying, I trust that child. I trust that man. I trust that woman. I believe that what's in them is going to be powerful. God is not seeing you right now as you feel. He's seeing you as you will be. He's looking looking right here in this church, in this city, in North Dakota. He's looking at a powerful church. He's looking at prayer warriors that will be in all night prayer meetings. He's looking at intercessors that will rise up at three in the morning and begin to intercede on behalf of the lost and on behalf of the church. He's looking at prophets in this room. He's looking at apostles in this room. He's looking at evangelists in this room. He's got his eyes set on church planters that will plant churches in neighborhoods. He's looking at powerful men and women of God. Hear me right now. What this church has been through in its past and what this church has gone through in its present is because God's hand is on this church. It's not God has forsaken you. It is God looking down and saying there's nobody I trust more than the constituents of business 
Bismarck, North Dakota than to trust with problems because I know it's going to take them to new heights. I want you to stand to your feet right now. I want you to lift those hands high. And I don't want you to sit there quietly. I want you to just heap up. You may not feel it. It may not feel like it. It may not feel like faith. But that's not what I'm looking for. And that's not what God is looking for. He's looking for the child of God to lift up their hands and say, God, I don't feel all the goosebumps. But that's not what I'm here for. I trust you. I believe you. Even though you haven't, I'm still going to tell people that you can. Even though I haven't seen it yet, I'm still going to tell my family what you're capable of. God, I don't need just testimonies. I've got word with what you've done. Even though you haven't done it for me, I can still look at the word and tell people that you do it. God, I trust you. God, I believe in what's going to happen in this church. You hear me right now. There's going to be an outspread of the Holy Ghost that comes through this church. God has trusted you with brokenness. God has trusted you with pain. God has trusted you with problems. And now there's going to be a great revival and a harvest that is manifest within this church. God has not just sent me here to just minister to you, but God has sent me here to speak over you some things. I can see in the spirit that there's going to be a great harvest that's going to sweep into this church. And it's going to come through powerful men and women of God that have put their full faith and trust into a God that you didn't feel like you can trust. Then God's going to look from heaven and say, they believe me even though I didn't. So now I will. They trusted me even though I didn't give them reason to other than my scripture. Now I'm going to show them what I am. God's going to show you a mighty harvest in this area. I, I can see some of you baptizing people in swimming pools and in bathtubs. I can see Bible studies happening in living rooms to the people of God and people getting filled with the Holy Ghost in living rooms. Come on, the problems don't last forever. But while they're here, it's producing in you a greater glory. These present sufferings, Paul said, cannot compare to the glory which will be revealed in us. These are just light afflictions, Paul said. All of this is going to produce in you a great reward. I want you to come to these altars right now, all of the church. I want you to grab the hand of your neighbors when you get up here. Hmm. 